John chapter 10 is where we find ourselves this week as we continue in our series, I Am Jesus, in his own words. Um, And I want to play, as we start today, a little bit of word association with you, uh, really more character association. If you spent much time watching movies, um, you know this, that that in all of kind of the Marvel world and all of kind of action movies and all the things that are really, really popular this day and age, one of the things that's most attractive about them is the culmination of any story when somebody saves the world, or when somebody saves somebody else, saving someone's life. I want to share this list of names with you, and I want you to tell me what they have in common. Tony Stark, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Boromir, Han Solo, Jack Dawson from Titanic, Dumbledore, One of my personal favorites, the T-800 from Terminator 2, and Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy. What do all those characters have in common? Beloved, yes. Funny, some. Right? But more than that, all of those characters in their respective films, they died a sacrificial death. They died a death for somebody. Maybe it's Tony Stark who takes all the Infinity Stones and he blasts Thanos and, and everything, right? And loses his life in the process. Or maybe it's somebody like Jack Dawson who dies for someone. Now, if we turned on Avengers Endgame, or we turned on Lord of the Rings or any of these films right now, we lowered the lights and we cranked like the Dolby, right? Like the you-can-feel-it sound. We would likely see these sequences or see these scenes and we would be dramatically affected by what we saw on the screen before us. Movies are powerful, right? Motion pictures and the images and the association and the music and all the things that come with it are incredibly powerful. You you might even be moved to tears in some of these scenes. The heroic offering of the life of someone on behalf of another is astounding. But we're in a church service, so you can probably guess where this is going, right? In John 10, Jesus, in his own words, says that he's a good shepherd. One of the resounding things that he describes in relationship to being the good shepherd that is more astounding and more captivating than any major motion picture moment is this. That he lays down his life for the sheep. And that his sacrificial death changes everything. Today we're going to continue in this series and see this statement where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, revealing who he is through his very words. And this is the question for us today. In a world where scenes and moments and things that we encounter, these cultural moments that we've experienced, like in Lord of the Rings or in Star Wars or in Marvel movies or all these things where this great grand story has been told that we leave a theater talking about that we're shaped by in some way, shape, or form, right? How does the good shepherd and his sacrificial death change you and me? This is John chapter 10, beginning of verse 10. We'll read through verse 18. It says this. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. 
I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord which we say together. Thanks be to God. Here's a big thing that we're going to see today within this text. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And this is what this means. What we're going to experience through this text today is, is these three components of that. Number one, the good shepherd gives life. And this is how the good shepherd gives life. The good shepherd gives life by giving his own life and taking it up again. This is what the good shepherd does. He gives life. This is how, by giving his own life and taking it up again. As we enter this passage today, to just do a little bit of background, verses 1 through 9, which we really looked at last week, Jesus says that I am the door. He means that he is the only way to God. This is the first of two metaphors that are going to be used in this text and in this passage. Now, as he says, I am the door, he's saying something very specific. He's saying that I am the only way to God. He'll echo this in John chapter 14, verse 6, what we just sang together, that he is the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him. In this specific scenario, he's using the door metaphor to show and to reveal what that looks like in the context of sheep, what it looks like to be the one who is the access point to the Father. We see in verse 9, these three things that we looked at last week, the big implication for us, that for us, if Jesus is the door, if we've trusted and repented, we're saved, we're secure, we're supplied. And although Jesus has spoken of sheep in verses 1 through 9, one of the things that really happens here, there's a stark turn, and the metaphor really changes Kind of the setting around of the motif changes to where he's moving from saying, I am the door, and not just the entry point to who God is, but moreover, I am the good shepherd. In effect, he's saying, I am the one who gives life. And it's a powerful thing to say to this audience, to the group of people that he's speaking with, the Pharisees and all those who can hear him. So here's the first thing to notice today as we look into verse 10 and beyond. The good shepherd gives life. The good shepherd gives life. This is what Jesus does. Look at verse 10. The thief comes only for these three purposes, to steal and kill and destroy. So who's the thief? If you're anything like me, you probably grew up either sensing or feeling or thinking that the thief here is none other than who? Satan, right? 
But this is why it's really important for us to see the words of Jesus and see all of the scriptures in the context embedded in the time and the place and where they really are. Because does the enemy, does Satan steal and kill and destroy? Absolutely. Go back just 66 verses and and you're going to see in John chapter 8 that Jesus will call him a thief and a liar. But in this moment, as we talked about last week, what's happening is Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees. He's confronting them in response to what happens in John chapter 9. Jesus heals a blind man. And this blind man comes to genuinely trust in Jesus, to recognize him for who he is, to see him as of God. And Jesus goes on to say that the Pharisees who seemingly see with physical eyes are the ones who are blind. And this man who is blind is the one who actually sees because he recognizes Jesus. Now, here's the thing for you and me, when we watch a movie, when we watch a show, when we read a book, there's this chapter break, and it signals that something different is coming. And that can be a really, really helpful thing, right? Unless you kind of binge everything, and you're just lost on the couch, and you don't know where you are, all of these episodes, they like have an ending, right? And then there's a new one that begins. We often read God's Word and think, well, okay, chapter 9's over, now it's chapter 10. But all of this is taking place in the same setting. It's really important for us to, us to understand this because the thief in this scenario is not Jesus introducing Satan into this conversation that he's been having about the Pharisees, with the Pharisees. No, he's talking to the Pharisees. He's saying that those who steal and kill and destroy, in some ways, do they emulate Satan? Absolutely. But ultimately, he's saying these are false teachers. Remember, we looked at Ezekiel chapter 34 last week and saw God's displeasure with the leaders of Israel. Why? Because they were awful shepherds. In many ways, they were false shepherds. They weren't shepherding at all. They were not caring for the sheep, for the people of God. They were giving them every bit of the letter of the law, but none of the spirit. They were harsh, and they were awful. They, they slaughtered the fat sheep, as the, as the Lord said, and they didn't bind up or heal the broken ones. Here's what they were doing. They were stealing, killing, and destroying. And Jesus is very intentional with the words that he uses here to describe what false teachers and those who would direct us toward either moralism or anything that's away from God, what they're actually doing. Look at these three words that he uses. Number one, he says they steal. They take what belongs to someone else. So seeking to take the sheep. Look back up into verse one and you saw that the, the thieves and the robbers would try to jump over the fence. They would try to climb the sheepfold. Remember that picture we saw last week of the sheepfold that's kind of that circular arc, right? And there's, there's these crude rocks that are stacked on one another. They know they can't get through. The de- thieves and robbers don't walk in the front door. They know they can't get in that way past the gatekeeper or the shepherd whose body is across the entryway. Instead, they're going to seek to come in another way. They're going to seek to climb in a different way. They want to take what is not theirs. They also want to kill, to use for selfish means. This is what God is saying in Ezekiel 34 when he's saying, look, you're slaughtering the fat ones. You're taking these people and you're destroying them. You're killing them for selfish gain. And then finally, that word destroy is unique. Because you get past kill and say, well, how do you destroy something as well? There's something really intentional Jesus is saying here that the destruction that that language 
is because those who are false teachers and those who do not recognize Jesus for who he is and point us toward anything else, they are literally changing the purpose. They're changing the image. They're altering life. They're destroying and marring what's meant to be. Jesus is very intentional when he says these things, and then he comes to say he's the opposite of this. He is nothing like this. He's not one who steals or kills or destroys. In fact, he comes to give life rather than steal it. He comes to give life rather than kill life. He comes to give to create life rather than destroy it. And how is this life described? What does Jesus say that this life is like? He says it's abundant. That his people are to have life abundantly. Now, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of us have probably used that language a lot of our life. We've said abundant, and, and we think it means something very specific, that it's like good life, like really good, and also a lot of it. But when Jesus uses abundant life in this moment, he's describing something is radically different than his hearers would have perceived for two reasons. One, that word abundant has a very close connection to the word eternal in John 3.16. This abundant life mirrors this eternal life. There's some overlap and they share so many qualities. We'll talk about that in a moment. The, the other thing is, is this word that he uses when he says abundant life and is describing this life, He's in the setting of the Pharisees, and he's connecting this back to John 3.16, where he would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believed in him should have what? Eternal life. Eternal life. When Jesus says that, he's talking to another Pharisee. The Pharisee's name is Nicodemus. Do you remember this story? Nicodemus has come under cover of night to ask Jesus ultimately what it means to be connected to God. And Jesus says, you have to be born again. This is eternal life. It's abundant life. It's new life. It's created life. It is radically different than that the false teachers are after. Jesus is saying he gives abundant life that's unlike any life that we know. And he's doing it in the midst of this, this metaphor of, of being a shepherd to sheep because he's, he's really powerfully saying something that's almost hard to imagine. Because when, I think, when you and I think of sheep, we think of fluffy, white, walking around in the happy grass, doing great, right? Maybe some people are thinking veal, I don't know, um, but, or lamb chops and that kind of stuff. But um, look... The reality for the shepherds in Israel was such that they had sheep on a very large plateau. If we could draw it up, it's like this 40-mile area in which the land is largely barren. And then you're like, man, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why are you grazing sheep on barren land? Well, the cities, the epicenters of life there were really around the areas where they could actually grow food. So that soil was meant to grow food and crops and harvest. 
And so the shepherds took the sheep and they grazed wherever they could across this land that probably resembled much more than a, of a desert than some sort of pasture that we envision. So when Jesus talks about abundant life in regards to sheep, he's describing something that's wild. Lush green grass. Areas where sheep are fattened. They're not skinny, where they're protected, where they're cared for. And in this moment, Jesus is describing and using this metaphor to say that abundant life is a life beyond anything that we can anticipate or imagine. It's connected to eternal life. And that word eternal life in John 3.16 literally means outside of time or beyond time. That sounds like some Marvel stuff. That sounds like Dr. Strange, right? Outside of time, beyond time, abundant here carries the same idea. Beyond what is anticipated, exceeding expectation, going past the exceeded limit. Because abundant is not just about the quantity. Because we often think about abundance, and that just means to us a lot. It just means a bunch what Jesus is saying here is that not only does he give life that is eternal, that is never-ending, but that the quality of life is beyond compare. Jesus is talking about real life. And not real life like you and I think about real life in the real world, like real life. Restored life. Like pre-fall, Garden of Eden Walk with God in the cool of the day, life. That's the kind of life that Jesus is describing. Life that the shepherd gives in which there's no wanting. This is what Psalm 23, 1 means. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The life that Jesus gives is so grandiose, it's so amazing, it's so incredible that we couldn't want for anything. We couldn't create or invent or dream up something better, something more amazing. And I know you, and I know you're a dreamer, because I am too. We dream and think and want all kinds of stuff, right? We're people that anticipate the next thing, the next big thing. Because we think that's what life is. Like, we got spring break coming up in a couple of weeks, and I think there are probably people in this room who are just limping toward it. You're just ready for, you're just ready for a break. You're ready for something new. You're ready for something different, right? You're going to go to the beach. You're going to go to the mountains. Or you're going to go on this trip, and you have anticipation for it. I don't know about you, but I think most of us largely build something up and have such great anticipation that the event or the thing that we're a part of never lives up to it. Does anybody else have that experience? Like you anticipate this thing being absolutely amazing. Like we're going to get in the car with our family. And, and here's the thing. As, a, as an adult, I think I envision things different now. My, like mine's like the car ride. Like I anticipate in this crazy way. Like we're just not, nobody's going to yell at anybody. We're going to be kind to each other. I'm not worried about the weather or where we're going as much. Like we're, but we're going to be okay. Right? Like I'm going to use, I, last time I went on a trip, I didn't even use the right app for the map. I just like I started wrong. I used the wrong one. The trip was off to a horrible start, right? 
I had like, and, and I'm not talking about just like getting to the week of the spring break and the fun and the thing. Like I'm not out of the driveway and I've done it wrong, right? It just, the, the, it just didn't meet expectations or anticipations. Jesus gives us more than we can anticipate, more than we can expect, more than we can imagine. This beyond time, eternal life that is abundant and filled with his love and his grace and his mercy. That's who he is. And that's what he longs to do for us. And that's what he has given you and I who trust in him. Jesus is the good shepherd who gives life. But we only see what he does. We also see how he does it. Look into verse 11, and you see that the good shepherd gives life by giving his life. There's two real components to verse 11. That says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Number one, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And you and I are tempted to just see this as a nice picture. Just the rod and the staff and the fluffy white sheep and this little metaphor. But it's so much more than this. Remember Ezekiel 34. Remember Psalm 23. Remember Psalm 100. That we are God's people, the sheep of his pasture. What Jesus is doing here is radical. When he says, I am the good shepherd, he is identifying himself with the very nature, the totality of the Old Testament. Because in Ezekiel 34 and Psalm 23 and Psalm 100 and all these different places, shepherd imagery is God imagery. This is who God is. God is seen as shepherd to his people. So when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, he's not using just like good language. He's using God language. This is huge. This is massive. He's identifying himself as having union with the Father. This is what Jesus is doing in this moment. And it's so astounding that people want to kill him on the spot. If you've got your copy of God's Word and you're turned to chapter 10, if you look down into verses 31 through 39, you're going to see at the end of this sequence, this encounter with the Pharisees, they want to stone him. They're going to try to arrest him. And of course, it's not the appointed hour, so he's not arrested. And he asks, what works are you want to stone me for? And ultimately, they say it's blasphemy. That he would say these things, that he's connected to God. Jesus is saying something incredible. In his own words, he's revealing who he is. He actually is the shepherd of the people of God. He's God himself. Now, the second component of this verse, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this language is really interesting because the shepherd's job was tough, really tough. Do you remember, if, if you were here during our Advent series, the very first week of Advent, so the last Sunday of November, we, we aired a video that really depicted this, this Luke 2 moment, this moment in which God has proclaimed Jesus' birth is announced by angels to shepherds. Do you remember that? Do you remember seeing that? And you saw the shepherd running through the field. And he looked, I think there's a really healthy depiction of what a shepherd historically would have looked like. Tattered garments, 
a staff. He was actually walking and limping with some sort of kind of makeshift stick contraption of sorts. He was limping because he couldn't walk. The shepherd's life was hard. A lot of cold, sleepless nights. Hot ones too. Taking care of sheep in the field. Protecting them from wolves. From attackers. People who would come to still. But still, it was exceedingly rare for a shepherd to die for his sheep. And as a metaphor, this is what a gentleman named D.A. Carson says, as a metaphor, we see it as the good shepherd being willing to put his life on the line. But with Jesus, he's prepared to do this. There's a big difference. This is not some moment thing where it's like, if, if it comes to it, then I'll do that. Jesus is actually prepared to do this. There's a deep intentionality with the words that he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus moves beyond metaphor to what he's actually going to do. The intentionality is so unmistakable that he's going to lay down his life for the sheep. He says it multiple times in this passage. Look at verse 11, verse 15. If you have your copy of God's word, look at this before you. You'll see that language of laying down his life for the sheep in verse 17 and twice in verse 18. This is a consistent theme. Remember, if you looked at, at, the, at the history of Jesus with his people and, and really looked through the lens of the gospel of Mark, you'll remember in Mark chapter 8, it's really the center, literally the central moment of that entire gospel record of Jesus' life where Jesus begins to tell of his death and Peter says, no, it can't be. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, right? You're thinking in the ways of the world. The disciples would hear these things. Others would hear these things and, and just write it off as, well, he's doing all these miracles, all this incredible stuff is happening. But this part, this, this is, I, I'm kind of throwing that out, right? That's kind of strange. It's not happenstance. This is providence. Look at how he says this over and over and over again. And the way John records this is synonymous in each of those instances. In 11, 15, 17, and the two times in 18, Jesus all says, he says this the same way every single time. And not just the words, but actually in the language, he uses the same mood and the same tenor. And what that shows us is something really, really, really important. It's called present active indicative. And here's what that mood means. That there's three things happening when you say something in that way. Number one, that the action is happening. Present time. Number two, that, this, that the uh, statement itself is a true statement. And number three, that the subject carries out the action. Now that might just sound like, hey, this is an like English class, right? Why is that really, really important? Here's why it's important. It's crucial. Because John wants to make clear that Jesus' death is a present-time genuine action and that it's true. But the biggest of the three is this. Jesus is the one who carries it out. Jesus is the subject who does the verb. He's the one that actually lays down his life. This does not just happen to him. 
This is truly the mission of God. He lays down his life willingly. It is a sacrificial death. It's no coincidence. It is truly God's providence. It's the mission of God. This is how Jesus gives us life, by giving his own life. And the context in which he states this is really important as well. Why does he say this? Jesus is talking about the fact that that the shepherd will die. And it's the dual meaning thing, right? One, we talked about last week, Jesus being the door, the gate, that one lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus would guard that entryway and protect the sheep. But his hearers would also recognize this as this is one who is saying that that the shepherd is going to sacrifice. This is a rare thing. This is a strange thing. Why is he saying that around sheep? All this sheep talk is important because it sets the stage for sacrifice. The Old Testament idea of atonement for sin and genuine sacrifice of a spotless lamb. In this moment, Jesus is proclaiming, he's saying in these words, when he says, I I lay down my life, he's not saying I'm setting an example. He's saying this is an exchange. I am giving my life for death. I will take on the curse of sin and give life. I will take on unrighteousness and give righteousness. This is how Jesus gives life. He gives life by giving his own life. Finally, he takes it up again. The good shepherd not only gives life, he does it by giving his life, and he takes it up again. Verses 17 and 18, he says this. For the reason the Father loves me, or for this reason, rather, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So in this moment, Jesus is describing in an even more intricate way the union that he has with God. It's the very love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father that makes salvation possible. Because Jesus is talking about pre-existent, pre-creation love that's experienced within the Trinity, within the Father, Son, and Spirit. And here Jesus is stating that his authority comes in and through the very love of God. But if you look to the very first portion of verse 17 and you see this, for this reason the Father loves me, you maybe you might think, well, it, God doesn't love Jesus unless he does this? What does that mean? It might kind of throw you for a loop in some ways. I want you to read this quote off the screen um, from two brilliant gentlemen, Andreas Kostenberger and Scott Squain, New Testament scholars, particularly in the work of John's Gospel, because this is something that we need to see and understand to understand how the Trinity works and how God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together and what's happening in this moment as Jesus willingly lays down his life in accordance with the will of the Father. It says this, The Son does not obey because he's inferior to the Father or under compulsion to do so. 
this mission that's been given by God, he's not under compulsion to. He obeys the Father because the Father's will is his will. And because obedience to the Father is the truest personal expression of his unity with the Father. In this sense, the Son is equal in authority to the Father as the Son of the Father, whose will is always to obey the Father's will. Quite often, when we use language like Father and Son, we think of one whose authority or one whose place supersedes that of another. Or one who was born of, right? But Jesus is begotten, not made. We need to understand that as Jesus lays down his life willingly at the charge of the Father, that his will is in concert with his. The Father commissions Jesus to this work. Jesus accomplishes the work, and then the Spirit applies it to us as we repent and believe in the good news of Jesus. That's how the Trinity is working in this moment. And what is the will of God that Jesus says in this place that has authority to do is this. It's to die for sinners like you and me and to take life up again. Jesus has the authority of his own resurrection. That is our hope. If you were here for the discipleship conference this weekend, you heard Jared say this, that Christianity is fundamentally about raising the dead. That what we believe in is about dead Coming to life. Death coming to life. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's going to say, what I delivered to you is of first importance, and he goes on to describe the gospel, the good news of Jesus in this very specific way, that Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. All of that according to the scriptures. And then he talks about very specifically who Jesus appeared to. That he appeared to Peter, and then the 12, and then there were 500 other brothers and sisters that saw him, and then he appeared to James, and then he appeared to the rest of the apostles, and then Paul says, and finally, one timely, he appears to me, right? Why does Paul go to this link to say this? Because if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we have no hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says it in this way, very specifically, after he's given the gospel, he says... If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we're still stuck in our sins. We don't have any hope. But thanks be to God, not only that Christ has died, but Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. And you and I can have this abundant life. You and I can experience this. And it's not just life without end. I remember being young and thinking that eternal life sounded terrible. It's just like just on and on and on. Like, what are we going to do for all this time? What's going to happen? Those are normal thoughts. If they're not, don't tell me that. Um, but this is not just life that goes on and on and on. It's a life beyond compare. Life that we can't imagine. The life that we were meant to live apart from sin and brokenness and pain and tears and shame and guilt. No, it's perfect life with God, in God, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross and the resurrection. Here's the thing, man, I, I love a good movie. I love a story. I love redemption stories. I think we all do. I didn't love the Houston basketball redemption story last night. Um, 
I love these stories in which people lay their life on the line. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter if it's Obi-Wan or it's Tony Stark. And look, I, I have a girl dad. So uh, the, the biggest example for me that I've seen in this is this incredible movie called Frozen. Right? Anna forsakes True Love's Kiss with Kristoff so she can stand in front of the blade and save her sister Elsa. All of these stories are incredible. They've all affected me. But only Jesus has changed me. This sacrificial death changes everything for you and me. He gives us his life beyond anything we can imagine. He atones for our sins and he gives us resurrection life. What do we do with this? Because our worship team is going to come in a moment. I want to share three specific things with you. Ways in which we can be who we are, be transformed, and live as gospel people as a result of seeing the truth in this passage. Number one is to recognize that Jesus' death changes absolutely everything. Is to believe this as true. Not to just hear it and accept it, but to trust in and rest in with your whole heart that Jesus has laid down his life and taken it up again so that you might live in it, that you might live through it. Abundant life is not the life that we make. We're all going to wake up tomorrow and go somewhere different. I'm, I'm going to come here, actually. But uh, the rest of us, well, I guess we'll go somewhere, a lot of us will go somewhere different, right? You'll, you'll be in your home, you'll be in your workplace, you'll be in your school, you'll be somewhere. And for adults, you're doing this thing called making a living. But you don't make an abundant life, Jesus is the one who gives it to you. Believe in that, rest in that, let your hope be in that. Second, Man, we could live in community together in the gospel based on what we see in this passage. Because you have life. And how can we be a blessing to others around us? There's somebody this week that you need to write an encouraging note to. That you need to go talk to at school that nobody else is talking to. There's somebody that you need to call and pray with. There's somebody that you need to call and encourage. There's somebody you need to reach out to and say, Hey, can we get together for that cup of coffee we've been saying we're going to do forever? And just share your story and talk about what God's doing in your life. And let discipleship and encouragement begin. Finally, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. You and I hear the voice of the Lord. Are we helping the sheep around us hear the voice of the Lord? Are we helping the people that are around us hear the voice of the shepherd? that he might draw them into the fold, that they might have abundant life in him. Look, after the service is over, um, we're going to sing and respond uh, and just worship in a moment. We'll have a benediction after the service is over. If you have yet to find life in Jesus, my encouragement would be this, that, that you would repent and believe in the good news of Jesus, that you were broken, that you were separated from him because of your sin but that God in his great love and his mercy and his grace in a way that is beyond what we could conceive or imagine gave us his son to die on the cross so that we might live. My encouragement would be to come and talk and repent and believe the gospel. 
You may be in this place and say, hey, I've been worshiping here for a while and I want to join the church. Or, or you know, I, I'm convicted. I need to experience believer's baptism. I've never followed through with being baptized. My encouragement to you would be this. After the service is over, come. And we'll be here to receive you. As we prepare to respond, will you bow your head and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we couldn't dream up the life that you've given us in your son. The good shepherd who gives us life by laying down his life and taking it up again. What a savior we have in Jesus. Help us to rest in his love and mercy and grace. Father, you've loved us beyond compare. And Jesus, you've loved us, as John's gospel says, to the end. Will you help us love one another in this church? Fathers, we seek to be transformed into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus, as we shepherd one another and care for one another. God, help us help others in the little world in which we live hear your voice so that they might be drawn into your fold and experience life abundantly. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.